and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, we're sitting down with Caitlin Borgoyne, and uh, excited to talk with her about both um, customer discovery and product discovery, as well as founding startups and, um, you know, learning some hard lessons, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, awesome. So um, I would love if you could start by telling us a little bit about your background. Um, I, I know that you are a three-time founder, and now you are coaching and training and consulting, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. But if you could tell us a little more, what were those steps along the way? That would be awesome. Sure. So um, I started my first business at 25. I'd graduated from PR school and I started just doing freelance um, PR and marketing work. And um, that was kind of company one and grew that to be, uh, I think at our largest, we were a nine person team. We were doing mostly branding and PR work um, as an agency. We got to work with some great, cool clients like Target and Holiday Inn, uh, but most of our clients were smaller businesses and startups. So that was kind of my exposure to the startup world was actually having them as clients. Um, around the same time, um, within about a year and a half after starting that company, uh, because I'm a glutton for punishment, <laughs> I also um, created a restaurant consulting business and we did all of the marketing and PR consulting and then I brought in um, other specialists to um, to help on the consulting end, um, restaurateurs, designers, um, sommeliers, mixologists, that sort of thing. Um, so that company got acquired within about two years by... Um, okay, funny pause. Enough. Sorry, go ahead. Who did it get acquired by? Oh, that's okay. Um, are you, is my sound all right? Yeah, no, I just wanted to ask you a question before you went into the rest of the story, but tell us who it got acquired by, and then... Um, So by another startup. So um, I don't even know if that startup's around anymore. Um, That was several years ago. But yeah, at the time, that that was kind of my introduction to the world of building online startups, was having them as clients, then also having my company acquired by one. Interesting. So, so I, uh, I definitely want to hear the rest of your story, but I actually wanted to ask, um, you say it's because you're a glutton for punishment, but I'm wondering like, what made you decide to start a restaurant consulting business when you were already running a PR business? Was it, did you just love restaurants or like what, what got you into that? Well, um, my husband's a restaurateur and I had a lot of exposure to the restaurant world. You know, I'd worked as a server all through university. Um, and, I saw that a lot of restaurants, they didn't just need, you know, marketing help and PR help. They really needed a more full suite of services. They needed to make their whole experience better. They needed to have a more um, cost-effective menu. A lot of them were uh, were losing money because their menu pricing was out of sorts. So because I had the experience and exposure to that world, because I had so many friends who are restaurateurs, um, And because I had my own team that was already doing uh, a lot of of work with uh, restaurateurs through my through my first company, I thought, hey, like, why don't I try this out as a niche, Um, launch it as a second company, we'll do all the marketing and PR stuff, but I'll bring together these other folks. And really, what I was trying to see was, 
if that was where I wanted to be, if I wanted to go full time into um, being a restaurant consultant company. And, you know, I was fortunate to have that company acquired. Along the way, what I really learned was that what I was hungry to do was build a more scalable company. Um, and that's where the right idea to do my first startup came from. <laughs> so that's kind of the how I got to um, 2014. And in 2014, I knew I wanted to do something more scalable. At the time, I was kind of toying with a few different ideas, one of which was doing, um, this was actually 2013, one of us was doing like online courses. And your audience might be familiar with that world a little bit. There's companies like Skillshare and Udemy, and there's lots of like places now where you can go and buy online courses. But in 2013, there wasn't as many. It was still somewhat new. Um, but there were a few kind of like thought leaders who were pretty big players who were making good money. And that was a concept I had in my mind. In re- on reflection, some of me always wonders what my story would be like had I done that instead of trying to do a, a tech company. But <laughs> you, can't go, you can't go back in the past. And you, you know, I, I learned so much throughout the journey of building my startup. But so kind of fast forward, my idea is I... When I was launching um, my first two companies, I was, um, you know, I was pretty scrappy. I didn't have a lot of money. I was trying to figure out how to get the services and skills that I needed to grow the businesses using what I did have, which in the very beginning, when it was just me and I was freelancing, was less money, but a lot of time. And so I had this bright idea to do a skill swapping platform. And uh, that's where the kind of like was version one of, of my tech company, which would later become Vendive. And that's where I had my first foray into customer discovery. And I learned about the concept of the lean startup and the importance of going out and doing customer interviews. And I was part of this program and we were, it was an accelerator and we were moving quickly. And I was supposed to do 300, you know, I was supposed to do 10 interviews a week for eight weeks. And I think I ended up doing 30 um, and ended up doing 300 in total and thought that I had done all the right things and thought that I was launching the right thing. And through my customer discovery, kind of discovered that there was this unique customer segment that was already sw- swapping skills offline and would be hungry for an online solution. And that those were women service providers. So ended up focusing the company specifically on women. And long story short, you know, four years pass, we raise venture capital, we do two significant pivots, you know, uh, Forbes magazine is calling us the next LinkedIn for women, and it all came crashing down. <laughs> um, and so, so uh, yeah, I'm not going to let that be a short story. <laughs> um, so, so take me back to when you... Um, First of all, your second business got acquired. Mm-hmm. What happened to the first business? So the first business, I still had that team and pri- I mostly rolled them into the startup. So stopped okay. doing, stopped taking on client work, stopped operating um, as an agency, but kept the team and they all kind of became my startup team. Okay. And um, how did your second business get acquired? Because I, I know uh, in the... For some of our startup founders, that they may be a lot more aware of how those things happen. But I think for people who are deeper in companies, it just kind of seems like this magical thing. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to hear a little more. Like, um, had you been aiming for that? Did you have conversations? Were you trying it, to develop 
it that... wasn't necessarily something I'd ever even thought was going to be on the horizon. And funny enough, some of your startup founders might might resonate with this. The, the gentleman who acquired it, his company was um, was a startup that helped restaurateurs to figure out their finances. And he was trying, it was, uh, it was a SaaS-based service, but he wasn't making any money with it, really. It wasn't his big venture. What he was actually successful with was his consulting services. And so while he'd really invested a lot of his time and energy in building his app, what was paying the bills and actually generating a lot of revenue for him was his consulting services. So when I brought him on um, as a consultant, as part of my restaurant consulting company, and he saw the talent that I brought together and the processes we had in place and the brand we'd built and the customers we were reeling in, he wanted to be a bigger part of it. And at the same time that he was looking to be a bigger part of it, I was thinking about wanting to do something more scalable. I really wanted to move out of the consulting kind of like exchanging hours for dollars model. And so him and I started talking and it just made sense for him to take over and acquire the business and keep operating it. And I believe that he ended up shutting down his, um, his SaaS company, but still successfully running his uh, restaurant consulting business. Oh, there's a great lesson in there because I think yeah. a lot of people are able to create consulting businesses and think if they only had an app, it would all scale and they wouldn't have to put all this time into their consulting business. But um, that is much easier said than done. Oh, so much easier said than um, done. I see it all the time. And it's heartbreaking now because at the time I was just as naive. But I mean, now I see, you know, accountants and safety companies and, you know, just a lot of kind of traditional service businesses that end up hiring a dev firm and like paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to launch something that just gets no attention. And it's just a shame to see. And it happens consistently because they're not doing customer discovery in the right way. And that's kind of in that's what's been the focus of my work over the last year and a half since I closed down um, Van Deve. It was looking at the mistakes that I made, thinking I was doing all the right things, um, being part of a really rich and um, and uh, active startup community here in Atlantic Canada and seeing a lot of my friends making the same mistakes and having the same challenges. And then I just kind of like became obsessed with that problem. Like, well, if all these people are building the wrong stuff. And they all think they're following, you know, the lean method and doing it right. Where are they going wrong? And that's kind of led to the work I've done in the last year and a half. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I think uh, you hit the nail on the head and still see uh, people doing this all the time. And, and for those of us who are deeper in the product discovery world or have been in that for a long time, um, it can actually seem kind of shocking, um, I think, anyways, when, when we go out and talk to startups um, and see that new startups are still making the same mistakes that people in the industry were making 10 years ago. Um, but I think that it's uh, a lot of it has to do with human nature. And, of course, the, um, the allure of having a successful tech company is stronger than it ever was. Um, so That's people right. are, people are flocking to it. More people are trying it. And of course they don't all know all the lessons learned, uh, yet. So, so let's hear more about your lessons learned. So, um, so, so you, then your company gets acquired, you have your first company team, your, the team from your first company and you say, okay, 
I want to, I have this talent together. So you're already starting off with more than, more than zero because you've got a team you've worked with. Um, and then you have this idea and you want to go out and do it. And it sounds like you joined an accelerator. Tell us a little more about those early days and how, how did you end up with that, um, those steps and, and what, what did you learn in those interviews and what did you think you learned that you later learned was wrong? So that's a great question. So I, um, when I was just kind of toying with it, I didn't even know necessarily what a startup was. Um, I was fortunate enough to go through a, you know, a program at a local university that was the first one, probably in one of the first ones in Canada to be based on the whole starting lean method and the concept of you don't have to build the whole thing, like you know, build your MVP, um, build, measure, learn, that thought process. To me, as an entrepreneur who had already been in business for five years at this point, that was just like everything I wanted to hear because it gave me license not to be a perfectionist, which is often in my nature, um, and learning about the importance of doing customer discovery was really foundational. It was, I knew that like it was something that I hadn't understood in the past, and as having run a branding agency, it almost gave me a bit of shame too, because it was like, I wasn't doing this with my consulting clients. Like, how was I not going out and talking to more customers all the time? How was I just making all these random assumptions based on surveys and like online observation and market research, but actually not talking to them. And so it was really, really eye opening. Now the, um, the kind of fatal mistake that I made was that I didn't know what, how to do customer discovery the right way. So I was inadvertently biasing every one of those 300 interviews. <laughs> I would go out and I would get the person on the phone and I'd talk about my shiny idea and how cool it was and how we were going to build it, why it was important. And they would, you know, invariably be like, yeah, that sounds really great. Like, cool. And then I'd be like, so like, would you use this? And like, yeah, I would definitely use it. And like, you know, sharing ideas and this and that, not really understanding that somebody talking to this hypothetical future is in fact, probably <laughs> something you should totally ignore and discourage because you don't want to talk to people about what they might do. You want to understand what they are doing and where their unmet needs are and where your, your product could come in as a solution. I didn't know that at the time. And so I thought that I did all so, the right things. Yeah. So um, I want to dive into that even deeper um, because it's, it's refreshing to hear somebody talk about um, not just talking to customers, but talking to so many. I mean, you had really like 300 is, uh, is way up there on the number of conversations um, that, you know, that you've had as some of the most uh, prolific interviewers um, that are startup founders that I've talked to have, you know, been in the couple hundreds. Right. But, um, but I think what you're saying really hits home on the fact that um, talking to customers is better than not talking to customers, but it's still not enough. You have to actually know how to have a customer discovery conversation and you have to be able to pick up on whether you're learning things and whether you're learning new things, whether you're getting diminishing returns from those conversations. So I'm curious, while you were going through all of those, what else were you doing? Did, did your team, um, was it a discovery phase before any designs? Was it alongside designs? Um, like, was it basically, was it a continuous process or was it a phased process where you said, all right, all these interviews, then we're going to come back. We're going to have the perfect plan and we'll build it. 
So it was a little bit of both. Um, at this time, I'm still operating my agency because it's paying the bills. And so I'm going through this program in the evenings and in the day we're doing agency work. Um, then I had the, op- after going through that program, when I made the decision, I was going to commit to to building up this product. Um, I was invited to join a um, an incubator and it was the first of its kind, I believe the first of its kind in Atlantic Canada. Um, but it was awesome. It was like, you know, I got to be introduced to all of these other product entrepreneurs. Um, there were a couple people that were there that had sold their company for, um, you know, I think the the biggest acquisition of the, one of the teams that was there was like 80 million. So it was pretty good. Like, and that was in like two years. Um, so there's some founders there that had success, founders there that knew how to build a, a product company. Um, and so I got to be part of that environment. It was probably over the course of the next nine months that we balanced, you know, doing the, the paying work that I was using to keep my staff paid. And then in our downtime, we were working on launching the product. Um, I kept doing those interviews. I would, you know, we'd work on early versions was like a clickable um, uh, Envision mock-up, getting people to try that, use that. Again, in my discovery, I always I kept making the classic mistake, which now I recognize and now I understand that it's really why so many founders go out and they do customer interviews and then they go, oh, that doesn't work and they stop doing them. Like I often get um, people saying to me like, you know, well, Steve Jobs didn't do customer research, which isn't true. Or the classic, you know, well, if Henry Ford would have asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. And what I didn't know I was doing at the time was I was biasing everything. And I was asking people what they wanted. I was asking them if they thought they might use this product, how they would use the product, when what I should have been doing was really understanding how they were currently getting this job done in their life. So people who were going to use a skill swapping platform Like those were people that were probably already doing something similar in their life. They were either swapping with um, other friends or they're finding other innovative ways to get things that they needed for their business without having to pay. And I should have only been talking to those people because I would have learned the most from them. And I should have been trying to understand how they, the journey for them finding those solutions and what was working well for them and what wasn't because that would have revealed so much more about what this first product should have been. And instead I kind of already knew how I wanted to build up the product and I was just looking to validate it. And that was a big mistake. You know, it's interesting uh, what you say to me there too, about who you were talking to and what you were talking to them about, because um, uh, maybe you learned this over the following uh, time, but um, there are even some assumptions in there about who you should have been talking to and who, who had the pains that this would solve. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I don't know a lot about the skill swapping space. I pretty much um, offer to swap skills with my best friends because I want to help them, but I don't ever, you know what I mean? Like I don't do it with other people much. And I'm wondering, um, you know, what are the pains that actually drive somebody to swap skills instead of buying mm-hmm. the service that they need from somebody and, and whether that pain is felt most in the people who are already getting the swapping done or felt in people who didn't realize this was an option, you know? Oh, absolutely. I think um, like, are, are you familiar with, um, with uh, jo- the jobs to be done kind of innovation framework? 
Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And so learning about that, and I'm, do you think your listeners need kind of an intro to that or are they, do you think they'll be familiar? Yeah, why don't, what, well, I think they'll be familiar with it, but why don't you describe um, what it's meant to you? Uh, so how has your, how, how has learning the jobs to be done framework um, influenced the way that you do discovery now? Well, what it's influenced is really giving me a different way of thinking about the, the you know, the, what are the actual things that people are trying to get done when they use a product and what are their desired outcomes? And to your point, you know, people, there were lots of people who probably were looking to save money and get services they needed that never swap skills. And me understanding what they were doing instead and what their current solutions were and their challenges and problems with those would have really helped me to shape probably a better product and maybe not even have launched a product because I might've found that it wasn't the right solution. Um, So, so that, you know, understanding that framework and using that kind of thought process as a way to create some assumptions when it comes to coming up with a product and then using a, you know, a specific style of interview that's taught in the kind of jobs world that's called a switch interview. That's been really, really helpful for me in shaping, um, in making sure that I'm not just, you know, being an innovator and biasing my, and my, my solutions. And I know that um, Ash Marrera recently has kind of flipped on what he, you know, he used to talk about doing problem interviews and the importance of going out there and making sure that there was a problem, you know, fall in love with the problem, not your solution. But in one of his um, recent posts and what's going to become his new book, he's working on the innovator's gift where he talks about really new, like, you know, better products come out of our byproducts of old solutions, old solutions that are not meeting particular needs and not getting jobs done as well as they could be. And that the way to understand customers is by studying their current solutions and how they're currently getting those jobs done and finding the gaps and the success gaps in there. And that's was a concept that was never communicated or I didn't find that in any of the startups I was reading at the time. Again, this was 2014. So like, um, Clay Christensen's book, The Innovators, uh, or Competing Against Luck, that wasn't out yet. Like, I hadn't heard anything about this framework, but I really have found that to be foundational in the work that I do now and helping more companies to think differently about what their solutions are and really understand that if they understand their customers' jobs they're trying to get done, both those functional jobs, but then also like the emotional drivers, the social drivers that matter that they can build better products without um, as much bias. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. Uh, I like how you brought in some, some books that have influenced you and some lines of thought. Um, I will mention that I know that the, uh, there's other um, authors who have written, um, I don't know exactly what year their different books came out, but um, I know Stratagen, for example, which is Tony Ulwick's mm-hmm. company, who's the other jobs to be done, one of the other jobs to be done people. Um, I think that the outcome-driven innovation framework involves unmet needs as well um, mm-hmm. and has been around for a while. Uh, but I think the the thing that, you know, that I see when I go out and work with people and talk to people is um, it's not 
it's not so relevant, you know, what idea exists. It's relevant which ideas are popular and being followed and how much people have learned from them and how much people are able to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's also definitely cases where a thought leader will write a book that, um, you know, share some things that work really well for them, but everybody misapplies it. Um, yeah. and, that's, <laughs> and, that, and that's the challenge that does to be done. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you've, if you've experienced that, but as I started learning about it, my first foray into it was Clay Christensen. Um, and then reading Tony's stuff, uh, Alan Clements, another kind of loud voice in the jobs to be done world. I think that jobs to be done is, you know, you look at the lean startup and the success of that and how it's so popular. Um, and it's a framework that's in execution. Um, there's lots of processes and exercises and ways to apply it, but really the kind of build, leisure, build, measure, learn loop is pretty easy for people to understand. And what I find is like, you know, people like things that they can easily understand. Um, and jobs to be done there's a lot of misinformation about it. There's a lot of competing methodologies and there's a lot of like animosity and like confusion in the whole jobs to be done community. And so it's tricky because I think, you know, you, you mentioned Tony Albrecht's work, like what he talks about as being a job and what um, people like Clay Christensen and Bob Moesta talk about as a job are at odds and they're not the same thing. And the very specific step-by-step process for outcome-driven innovation that Tony talks about is not the way that Bob Moesta, who's kind of like the guy who inspired uh, the book Competing Against Luck, would talk about it. And so it's it's tricky. And that's kind of part of what I've been doing is trying to figure out how do I tease out the stuff that's actually actionable and helpful for founders to understand so that they don't get into the minutiae and the complexity of this kind of like, it feels like it's a turf war almost. Um, Someone I was talking to recently called it a religious war, (laughs) but yes. It's crazy. Um, And the thing is who cares whose idea it is? What matters is how does it help teams to build better products? And I think that mm-hmm. it's a victim of the, you know, people want to own the concepts because that's, you know, if you're a consultant, you want to own your framework. Um, but I think that that's partially what's really damaging. It's spreading and being more helpful because it's everyone's trying to own it. Um, and there's not enough collaboration and just creating an easy to follow system for people like the lean startup. Yeah. So, um, so there's one thing you mentioned in here that I want to go back to. Um, so, uh, for the record, I am not an expert on jobs to be done myself. Um, I am came through a different school that I think, uh, sort of gets to the same principles of human behavior, but using different words and frameworks. Um, and I've always sort of had the feeling that, um, everything that jobs to be done school teaches is really solidly grounded in, um, human psychology and behavior, but mm-hmm. um, that they're a bit trimping over their feet with some of the words they use. And I've just decided to not to, not to use them, <laughs> those words. Um, but, uh, but I'm uh, come more from the, the background of user centered design and product discovery and um, those, those frameworks. Um, so I am not familiar with what a switch interview is. Can you um, share a little more about that particular technique and what that means? Absolutely. So um, 
this is, you know, this is part of what I teach companies to do today. But the idea of a switch interview is that if you really want to understand what jobs your customers are trying to get done and what triggers them to, to buy, then you can use this tool called a switch interview. And the idea of, you know, in jobs to be done, the concept is that people don't buy products and services. They actually hire them to do specific jobs for them. And if the product works well, they will hire it over and over again. So whether if it's a subscription service, they'll keep paying the subscription. If it's a you know physical product, they'll keep using it in their home or they'll buy it over and over again. But if the product doesn't help you to get the job done the way that you'd hoped it would, then you'll fire it and you'll hire something else. And so the concept of a switch interview is that one of the best times to understand what it is somebody's trying to get done is when they have recently switched. So if you already have customers, then you can interview them about switching to your product. Most of the time when people are interviewing their own customers, they're spending all their time talking about their product um, or you know their, their customers' goals with their product. What's unique about the switch interview is that what you're trying to do in the course of that interview is basically create a timeline of everything that happened between the time that they first started thinking that their current solution wasn't working through to them actually buying your product. Because what's interesting about the the buying process is that it actually almost always follows the exact same timeline. Now that timeline might happen in 20 minutes or it might happen in 20 years but there are various stages that are consistent across the timeline. And so the timeline starts with the first thought. The first thought is usually triggered by something painful in your life. When you go, this current solution isn't working. It's not helping me to make the progress I want to make. It's not helping me get the job done. At that time, you usually will start passively looking and noticing things in your environment that might actually be a better solution for you than what you're currently using, but you may not be motivated quite yet to actually go and make the switch. Typically then something else will happen. It's another event that will happen that will trigger you to go, okay, this really isn't good enough. This, you know, I need something else and I'm going to start actively looking at other options. And so this could be like going and doing an online search or talking to your friends or trying different products. Um, then usually something will happen again, like that triggering event that makes moves you from, okay, I've been assessing all these options through to I'm going to buy this thing and consume it and make a decision. And if you can talk to your customer and try to get them to recreate that buying journey and really just talk in like exacting detail about what happened all along the way they will reveal things to you that they could never reveal in a survey or a typical interview because there's ways that they're making decisions that they themselves may not even know and may have never thought about in that way before. And so with, um, with Jobs We Done, they talk about there's kind of like these forces that are at play that either push people towards making the switch or stop them from switching. And they call them the four forces. And there's like the push of the, of the present. It's like the pain or the thing that's not working currently. And then there's the pull of the better solution, the ideal world, the way that I'm going to feel and look and live when I have this, this new solution. But then the things that hold you back along that journey that will stop you and slow you down are anxiety. So like, what if it doesn't work the way I said it would? What if it's too expensive? Blah, 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 blah. And then there's also the habit of what you're used to doing. Well, you know, I already use uh, like everything is P a PC and, you know, if I switch to an iPhone, then do I have to blah, blah, blah. Like, and so 
while you're doing this, this switch interview and trying to understand your buyer's journey to switching to your product, you're also learning all of these trigger points along the way. And from a marketing perspective, that's like gold, which is how I teach it um, to really understand and document your buying journey. But from a product management perspective, it's also gold because people are going to tell you about all the other solutions that they tried. And usually there's lots of them that didn't quite help them get their jobs done and why. And whether it's, you know, a competitor's product or whether it's trying to use a spreadsheet or whether it's hiring a freelancer, there's going to be these really emotional and painful things that are happening as they're trying to find this better solution. And that can be just such rich insight into how to build a better product. So that's kind of the tool that I, that I use that I really like that comes from the jobs to be done world. And it's not from Tony Olwerk. He does not teach this. Um, this is more from mm-hmm. the other camp. I see. Um, so it's interesting to me that uh, one of the things I loved about the way you just described that was when you talked about the emotion and the pain. Um, I think that's uh, regardless of what framework someone's using, um, consistencies in good product discovery um, in what I call product science are that you're talking to people about their past behavior. You're asking them to tell you stories and you're pulling out the emotions around it. So you're getting specific um, things that they've done in the past, not what you wish they would do in the future or what they think they would do in the future or what their ideal selves would do in the future. Um, I think there's something really, really great about that. The uh, it's interesting to me that the, what you just talked about goes a lot through the buyer's journey Um, so the decisions that happen before someone gets into the product, do you also have go-to techniques that you love to use, uh, for understanding things more on the retention side or the engagement side as, as, uh, as we would call it? So like with this, with this type of interview, typically you spend a little bit of time at the end, really understanding their first use of the product. And the the theory is that all of their expectation about whether or not this product was going to satisfy their needs, whether it was going to help them to get their job done, a lot of that will be built up in the journey. And so oftentimes their first use of the product is so critical because it's going to, it's going to be their experience with, is this working? Is it helping me to get my job done better? Um, Now there are lots of products that, you know, the more you use them, the more sticky they get, the more valuable they get. Um, but with, with this particular interview, you would then talk to them about their first use and you'd really want to understand that experience and you'd document any friction that they had or any delight that they had along the way. Um, I tend, you know, my teaching where I've kind of positioned my business is really from a marketer's perspective. And so this is a technique that I teach to product marketers, but I'm working with um, some Uh, product manager folks to kind of understand more how to apply this on an ongoing basis because there's it's a technique that's really good for understanding what jobs are trying to get done and understanding the buying journey and how to leverage that from a marketing perspective it can inform product decisions um, but it's not the best tool for like you know continuous innovation on the product Intercom has written some really good stuff about how they use jobs to be done. Um, they have a great book, actually. It's Intercom on Jobs to be Done. But what, what it allowed them to do was basically identify that people were using, this is before they, uh, this is years ago when they did their research, but they realized that people were using their product for four specific jobs. And so what they ended up doing was instead of having one product that did four things, they broke their product into four products. and 
each of those designed to do the job as good as possible. So one of the jobs was to give um, customer support inside of the inside of your app. And so they have a solution specifically for that. And one of them was to um, give uh, knowledge as a knowledge base, use it as a knowledge base for um, the company. So they built out their separate knowledge base. And so the way that they do, um, the way that they use jobs as an ongoing basis is every time they're discussing um, launching a new feature, um, they fill out an intermission is what they call it. And it's basically like where they have to list out what are the jobs that this feature is going to, that, that it relates to, and how is this going to help them to get those done better than the way that they're currently doing it. And they, it has to tie back to, to one of their uh, identified customer jobs. And Intercom is really a great example because like when they realized that they had these four very connected yet distinct jobs that people were hiring their product for, instead of breaking their teams up in marketing and producting and uh, marketing and product and dev customer success, they actually built individual teams around each job and those teams work autonomously and all they're measured on is the performance of actually doing that job better than what people are switching from. Yeah, I love that story. Um, Intercom is also, uh, you know, a, a favorite of mine. Um, and uh, they, um, what you just described also touches on a lot of other key things for product leadership and product management, which is how you divide up your teams and how um, cross-functional autonomous teams are more effective and, and um, things like that. Um, so I think it's really interesting. They do put out a lot of good content on uh, Intercom on, you know, X, Y, Z, different thing that they're doing. Um, I would love in the time that we have left to take you back to the founder story. Um, mm -hmm. So you were telling us that, um, you know, you did all of these interviews. You thought you were doing the right thing. And you've learned a lot since then, obviously, since you've just walked us through all of these techniques and things that you now know. Um, but help us fill in the gaps. So what happened after all those interviews for uh, Vendive? So um, we, you know, I got some, I got confidence that we were on the right approach. And then, you know, with my background being in, in marketing, I was able to be pretty successful with building um, like a pre-launch list. I think we had like 2,500 people on our pre-launch list. We got lots of flashy media attention when we actually launched, but like the product itself was not great. <laughs> like it, I was good at like, you know, at like 60% of people who hit our homepage would sign up for the app, but they were, it wasn't sticky. And um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Rand Fishkin, uh, he recently wrote a, he's the founder of Moz and he stepped down and he's working on a new, uh, new company now, but he wrote a book called Lost and Founder. And he talks about one of the things in it is that you can always tell where a company's weak spots are um, based on who the founders are. And for him, you know, Moz was always good on the um, marketing and messaging side, but like, you know, they, they weren't as strong on product because the co-founders that started the company weren't um, technical. And so I always felt that was, that was, that feels very true to our experience. I didn't have a technical co-founder and I, you know, taught myself how to do um, UI design. And I think I was fairly good at that, but like the back end was shit. <laughs> like it was buggy and glitchy and we tried to make the product too big and um, you know, lots of classic mistakes, you know, an MVP really in reflection was not minimum. <laughs> Like, and not viable. Yes. Um, 
I was going to say uh, we tried to make the product too big is um, I would call it famous last words for lots of founders, but I don't know how many of them ever come to realize that. So how did you come to realize that? Because it was just obvious. Like I was like, man, like we're for, like at the time I was like the people that we're competing against because we kind of made a, a business model pivot, um, which was a mistake. And reflecting back on it, like it kind of, it repositioned us. But at the time I didn't realize how big a mistake it was or how critical it was. And we had switched from being a free service to swap skills. Um, but it, it was a free service to swap skills. But again, looking back at 2014, before the kind of rise of all of these um, online course hubs, the model was you could swap skills for free, but if you couldn't find somebody to swap with, you could buy a DIY course through through the through the platform. And so it's like you can come here to swap and or you can learn to DIY. And we would be the kind of like vetted marketplace for all of this DIY content. Um, and that was the business model initially. It was difficult to talk about the size of the online course market because it was so so immature at the time. And so when I would pitch the, the company to venture capitalists and, you know, try to get, um, get seed funding, they didn't get that piece of it. And so after a number of kind of like, and I pro and I obviously was doing a really poor job of talking about it because it's my job to make them get it. Um, it's my job to express the right things. And so we ended up making a pivot and moved to, it was the only marketplace where you could buy, sell, or swap skills. And so by becoming a buy or sell, uh, by making that part our business model, and we would take a transaction fee on when you buy and sell, not only did we completely shift the focus of the company and our story, but we totally changed the business model and repositioned ourselves now to be competing against Upwork and Fiverr and all of these established service marketplaces who, you know, we were growing as quickly as they had grown in the early days. We were, it was not sticky and people weren't like people weren't hanging around. Like we were acquiring customers really quickly. We were acquiring customers faster than, than Fiverr had. Um, but we'd raised at the time, $125,000 and they'd raised 5 million. <laughs> so it was really, it was, you know, lots of rookie mistakes. Yeah. Um, and also ties back to what you were just saying about um, a startup having the strengths and weaknesses of its founders, um, mm-hmm. that you were, you were good at acquiring customers because um, mm-hmm. you, you knew that world. Um, that's also something I've seen as well uh, throughout several, um, several startup experiences that I've uh, you know, been in or known closely. So uh, as we get close to wrapping up, um, the last thing I always like to ask people is if they have advice, um, what, is, what is sort of your final advice? What is the biggest message that you want to give to um, startup founders or product leaders who are launching a new product um, so they can uh, learn faster and uh, learn from, from all of us? I think that the number one thing that I think a lot of companies could be doing better, um, whether they are super early stage or even later stage companies, you have to revisit it, is really understanding their customers and really getting clear about what a successful ideal customer looks like for them. Um, Because I think as, you know, as I've experienced myself, that piece is part of what we were pretty good at. Like we knew who 
who we wanted our customers to be. We didn't build a good product for them, but we knew who we wanted them to be and we were really good at attracting them. But a lot of the companies that I've worked with, there's they're very broad in who they're going after um, and they are haven't really determined what represents a, comp- a customer that would be a good fit customer versus a bad fit customer. And so they end up spending a lot of time chasing bad fit customers and sales is selling bad fit customers and they're getting into the product and then they're churning because they're net, they aren't a good fit for what the solution is. And so I would really encourage a lot of companies that if you haven't had that conversation recently and if everybody on your team isn't crystal clear on what a good fit customer looks like, then go back and redo that work because it's the, everything starts there and your product should be designed for that customer and you should, your marketing's for that customer and your sales messages are for that customer. And if you're not clear on what that is and your team isn't on, in alignment on who that is, then nothing else you do is going to be easy. It'll always be hard. And so that's kind of like, if I had to give like words of wisdom it would be everyone talks about being like obsessed with the customer and the customer's needs. Um, that starts with knowing who they are. And it's really a lot of founders think they have that piece down. But if you talk to their teams, their teams don't know. Their teams are on a different page. Their teams are running in a different direction. And it's because oftentimes founders hold so much information in their head that they think they're constantly communicating and the messages aren't getting out to their team. And then when things start changing, team members don't know either. And so I've seen it a lot and it's especially um, dangerous in companies that have, you know, just raised a seed round, have bought themselves, you know, two years of runway or scaling up and adding employees and nobody knows who the customer is and the product team's building for two different use cases. And it really, it just happens a lot. So that's my, (laughs) that's my kind of like spiel, but like, take the time to go back and make sure that everyone's aligned on what is it, like what an ideal customer looks like and what they don't look like. So you stop selling to the bad fit people. Amen to that. I especially love the adding in uh, what they don't look like. So people know exactly. You're not just saying, who do we wish we had? You're saying mm-hmm. who's our ideal and who's a bad fit that we might mistake for being a good fit. So we can be really focused. Yeah. And that comes back to understanding their desired outcomes. Like right now, you know, kind of like glance into what's happening in my world. Like I'm working with um, a couple of colleagues on bringing together um, a training program that will probably um, target, you know, we're talking about targeting B2B SaaS companies. And one of the challenges that we see in a lot of these companies is that while they want to be doing, um, you know, continuous customer discovery and they want to be making the right decisions based on customers' needs, they don't often even know how to go out and they don't know how to talk to customers. They don't know how to ask questions and surveys in unbiased ways. Like lots of mistakes are being made along the way. And a lot of founders, it's not from lack of working hard. I mean, they're working insane hours around the clock trying to keep all the um, wheels on the bus. And so one of the things that we're working on is coming up with a program that would basically train what we're calling kind of like research ops people. So you can bring this person into the company who's been trained in all of these different research skills and they become like your in-house Google analytics for qualitative data. Like you can ask them a question and they will go out and find the answer. We're going to teach them all the ways to find those answers using various frameworks and techniques and tools. But even as we, you know, being people who have spent a lot of time trying to understand how to do this stuff right, even we're falling victim to 
being too broad in who that initial customer looks like, who would be a good fit to hire one of these one of these um, research ops people. And it's just a great lesson that it's easy to tell people what to do and then sometimes harder to take your own good advice. And so I'm constantly kind of like reeling myself back in when I start to get excited and want to move forward quickly and making sure that we're doing the checks and balances too, that we tell other people they should do because it's kind of that thing you hear it a lot in, uh, in the services world, but like at the cobbler's son has no shoes. Like I really, you see that a lot and I don't want that to be us, but I guess I'm just, my point is I empathize with how hard it is because it's, it's work Mm -hmm. and it's work that a lot of people are doing off the side of their desk and they shouldn't be, but they, that's just the culture of a lot of companies. Yeah. So, uh, it is it is hard to do all the things that we teach, um, but it's these are the things where um, you know Marty Kagan said in in our uh, first episode that in our industry we have the blind leading the blind in a lot of places. Um, these are the things that those of us who've seen it work know that the payoff is so high that you have to do the work to make these things happen to make the room for the customer discovery to make the room for the um, the analytics, for the continuous, you know, feedback and iteration and for the strategy and understanding exactly who your ideal customer is and isn't because that makes everything else easier. But if you haven't ever seen that, it's easy to get caught in the day-to-day of, well, I just got to like output, output. Oh, totally. um, so yeah, I love, I love that you shared that story. Awesome. Well, I think we're about out of time. So um, Caitlin, uh, how can people find you if they would like to uh, hear more? So the uh, best place to find me would be on my website, which is uh, CaitlinBurgoyne.com. But Burgoyne's a hard last name to spell. So I'd say find me first on Twitter. Um, and I'm at Kate, K-A-T-E-B-O-U-R. So Kate Bohr is my Twitter. I'm probably the most active on Twitter. Um, and then you can find uh, you can find my website there. You can reach out um, through chat on my site. Um, I don't always keep my DMs open because sometimes you get a lot of weird stuff. So, but if you do want to talk to me, pop over to my website and um, use my drift there and, and pop in a comment. We'll set up a time to chat. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Caitlin. Thank you. This has been great. Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you love the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.